You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 13th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... People know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. A special counsel will be appointed to investigate US President Joe Biden as a second set of classified documents are found on his private property. We'll get the latest. The Japanese Prime Minister will meet with his US counterpart today at the end of a world tour. We'll look at what the priorities have been with world leaders he's visited and examine the agenda for the discussion with Biden. Then, India has changed policy allowing the citizens of the disputed region of Jammu and Kashmir to vote for the first time. We'll ask if this is a cynical move just calculated to win more support for the ruling BJP. Then... Australia and Papua New Guinea are the closest of neighbours. We are the greatest of friends. The Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese becomes the first foreign leader to speak in the Parliament of Papua New Guinea. We'll find out what he said and how it will affect regional security. Plus, Sultan Al Jabba, chief executive of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, will chair COP28 later this year. Is pragmatism the right approach, or is this a major setback for the fight against climate change? With a blast of business news and a check-in from the menswear shows in Florence with our fashion editor, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Thousands of Peruvians protested in the streets of Lima last night against the newly instated president, Dina Boluarte. The peak of China's current COVID-19 wave is expected to last two to three months, according to a top Chinese epidemiologist. And Lisa Marie Presley, the daughter of Elvis Presley and a singer in her own right, has died. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced that a special counsel will investigate whether President Joe Biden mishandled classified files. The announcement came after the White House said a second set of classified documents had been found by Biden's lawyers at his family home in Delaware. Well, joining me on the line is our U.S. editor, Chris Lord. Chris, this is the second set of classified documents dating from his time as vice president to be found in Biden's possession. Can you talk us through the sequence? of events. Yeah, that's absolutely right, because it's important to understand how this has unfolded, Georgina. So in November, it became clear that there were a cache of documents were found in the Penn Biden Center, which is in the University of Pennsylvania, dating back from his time when he was vice president. Now, these documents were found, and that was about 10 
documents there classified so they are important documents they are sensitive documents they were found and it's suspected what's believed to have gone on is that triggered a little bit of a, of a further look is there any more documents still hanging around from that time in places that they shouldn't be you know we're talking back to the obama presidency when joe biden biden was vice president in the that administration so some time has, has passed that these are still out there and still you know relatively accessible now what has subsequently become clear this week is that on Monday, this essentially, you know, these files it was revealed uh, had been found. So there's a bit of a lag before this becomes acknowledged publicly. And then, then on Thursday, it's been revealed yesterday that these docu- there was another set of documents found at the, at the Biden home in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, these, why does this matter? I think it's important to understand why this is important. Obviously. You know, it suggests that really it does point to documents being in places that they shouldn't have been, not dotting T's and crossing I's and so on, and being in, in control of things and the transition between one administration to the next. But it comes at a very sensitive moment, really, for Joe Biden, where imminently the expectation is he's going to announce that he's going to run for the presidency. He's got to project an image of uh, stability, but also coherence of an administration being in control of things and so on. And this doesn't really help. And of course, you have in the background the ongoing investigation into Donald Trump, the former president, who has held on to, you know, circa 300 documents at Mar-a-Lago, various points, refused to give them, hand them over to the National Archives, various sensitive documents there, an investigation ongoing into him. No president, former or otherwise, wants to have a special counsel put on their case. It's not a good moment. It's a political headache for Joe Biden. Uh, but the two cases do differ quite significantly. They do. They do. I mean, look, we, let's be let's be honest here. Joe Biden so far and the administration have cooperated fully. You know, they've, they've said, yeah, you know, we re- recognize that this uh, that these documents are here. They've handed them over to the National Archives when they can. They've, uh, you know, immediately this special counsel has been appointed and Biden has come out and acknowledged that the investigation is going to go ahead and he says it will unfold very quickly as in he doesn't believe it's going to be a big issue. The Trump side of things, of course, is quite different. He's pushed back. He's done everything he can to not cooperate with attempts to get these documents back from him. There's 300 documents thought to be in, in, in the possession in Mar-a-Lago. It's, it's a very, there are two very different things, but I think the Merrick Garland situation with regards to appointing a special counsel on Thursday, it's very important because he wants to give the impression, and, and it's right, and, and he, he, you know, he wants to be very clear with uh, both sides of the political debate here, Republicans and Democrats, that there's an even hand here, as in, because there's a special counsel investigating what Donald Trump is doing, and that is a robust investigation, there has to be a similarly robust investigation to what's happened here with Joe Biden. The trouble is, of course, that immediately Donald Trump will can jump on this and be, be very strong and say, well, look, you know, because we have to remember Joe Biden did come out when those when those documents were, were found to be in Mar-a-Lago and say, you know, look how irresponsible this is. It's terrible. That these, you know, were, were privately held in this way. Of course, this just doesn't look it's just not a very good look when you're just about to launch your, your bid for the next term's president. Chris, thank you very much indeed. That's Chris Lord in Los Angeles there. <laughs> 
Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is rounding off his five-day world tour today. He's been to Italy, France, the UK and Canada and is now in the United States in advance of hosting the G7 Leaders Summit in his hometown of Hiroshima in May. He and the US President Joe Biden will meet today and security is likely to be high on the agenda as regional tensions loom in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Tomohiko Taniguchi is a former special advisor to the cabinet of Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese leader. Uh, Tomohiko, many thanks for joining us. Can you give us an overview of this world tour? What was the overarching purpose? The overarching purpose is just, um, as you mentioned, that uh, hosting G7 summit meeting requires that Japanese leader uh, is in broad agreement with his colleagues from the G7 nations about the kind of agendas to be discussed on the 19th and the 20th of May later this year. The buzzword there, I am sure, is going to be rule of law. And that's going to be very much relevant when and where the rule of lawlessness rather prevails. And uh, the security, as you mentioned, uh, is has been high on agenda at each stop that he has made, but it's going to be particularly important for the US-Japanese leader uh, leaders meeting because the these two countries are bound by the security treaty and uh, the Japanese government has made a pledge under uh, Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida, uh, to increase its budget allocation for defense and beef up uh, some of the defense capabilities, uh, all of which uh, are, are going to be endorsed uh, rather powerfully, I'm sure, by the uh, US president. Now, I mean, with the pacifist constitution, this kind of discussion would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. What's changed from Japan's perspective? I would rather say that uh, Shinzo Abe was instrumental in that respect, but environment first and foremost, has changed. Uh, Never before has Japan had a neighborhood this much precarious. If you look at Japan's immediate neighbors, Russia, North Korea, China, none of which has ever exercised anything akin to, let's say, democracy, and all of which are very much keen on increasing rather than decreasing nuclear warheads. Uh, So it's uh, high time for Japan, the United States, and other G7 nations to have a common understanding about what's unraveling in this part of the world, in in addition, of course, to the Ukrainian situation. And of course, Japan now has its new national security strategy, uh, and it has an alliance with the US. Tell us a little bit more about that, that agreement between America and Japan. It is largely to do with the decisions made by the Japanese government Uh, December last year, to double the uh, amount of money to be allocated for defense and to equip Japan with the counter-strike capability, which, as you say, would have been unthinkable if uh, this were 10 years ago, and to uh, uh, have a broader uh, uh, understanding, again, with the United States about how important it is to concentrate military assets on the uh, uh, southwestern part of the country, Japan, uh, directly facing East Asia, uh, East China Sea and South China Sea. And it's going to give a very powerful signaling effect 
uh, to Beijing, to Moscow and to Pyongyang. Um, we're also hearing that they'll be talking about supply chains and these strict curbs on semiconductors to China. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's been high on agenda, uh, not only between the United States and Japan, but uh, in the broad framework of what's called Quad, involving India, Australia, Japan and the United States. And Japan must do much, much more in once again rejuvenating its semiconductor industry. It's a, it's a long and winding road ahead. But uh, th- those developments must also be conducted by the cooperation between the United States and Japan to maximize the economy scale and scope. Uh, And finally, Kishida has some troubles at home with various scandals and ministerial resignations, raising questions about how long he'll stay in office. Do you think this trip will strengthen his domestic standing? I think he very much hopes to uh, have that um, effect. Uh, But the good news for, for him is that he's going to have to face no large general nationwide election for the year, uh, coming year. And so there's going to be a window of opportunity that must be taken advantage of by Kishida. And I think Prime Minister Kishida is aiming at making the Hiroshima summit one such occasion to boost his popularity ratings. Popularity ratings do matter because it is the rank and file backbenchers of his own party that are are always uh, the first. To, uh, to show their discontentment. Uh, Tomohiko, thank you very much indeed. That's Tomohiko Tanaguchi there. Join Monocle 24 every day and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from a lineup of brilliant minds every day. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Catch up with Monocle's bureau and correspondents around the world. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Every weekday at 1300 CET, midday in London and 7am in New York City. Keep your appointment with The Briefing, weekdays on Monocle 24. It's 8.14 in Paris, 7.14 here in London. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Georgina Godwin. The citizens in India's part of the Himalayan region of Jammu and Kashmir are to get the vote for the first time. The divided and hotly contested region has a complex history. And before we look into what the extra votes might mean for Prime Minister Narendra Modi's ruling BJP party, let's get some context from Shruti Kapila, who's Professor of Indian History at the University of Cambridge. Shruti, many thanks for joining us on the show. Can you tell us why this region is so controversial? What is the history? Hi, morning. Uh, Well, in 1947, when India became independent and India was divided between India and Pakistan, Kashmir was a bone of contention because it is the only Muslim majority state which, under very controversial circumstances, acceded to stay with India. Uh, It did not choose. And as soon as uh, the British left in 1948, 
there was a, a war, a third party war. Uh, and, and as a result, the, the, the lines have always been contested. And India and Pakistan have gone to war over Kashmir at least three times uh, in that period. So that's the, the big backdrop that for India uh, and its secular credentials, for someone like Nehru, who founded uh, India's independence uh, settlement, Kashmir was actually the signature of the fact that India was a secular state, but it was also a Muslim majority state. Having said that, India was, until uh, Modi, till about three years ago, was 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 ruled through a very special, it had a special status under India's constitution, which meant that it had a completely different and devolved system of taxation and, and very many other things. Now, when Modi came in uh, 2019 under a majority mandate, uh, his Hindu, you could say supremacist, uh, you know, Hindu First Party, Hindu Nationalist Party, uh, decided that that Kashmir had to be um, ruled under the same rules by which other Indian states or provinces were ruled. And he abolished Kashmir's uh, special status, uh, which was enshrined in Article 370. So that's the background. And now... Now there's, of course, been this policy change. So tell us about this decision to to let the the the, the citizens there vote. Well, um, so uh, very briefly, there haven't been very many regular elections, assembly, uh, state elections in Kashmir, partly because since the mid 80s, off and on, there has been a very strong uh, insurgency and counterinsurgency. It's one of the most militarized uh, zones uh, in in the world. Uh, uh, and and then, of course, after you have abolished this, there is now a, uh, there is a kind of now a, a buzz in the valley that there are going to be in elections. And of course, the BJP wants to stake power. The way the valley works, the way Kashmir works, is that there's a Hindu-dominated area of Jammu, Kashmir, which is really the bone of contention. And then there's also Ladakh, which we haven't really talked about, which is Tibetan and sort of abuts uh, to China. So in under uh, under the new legislation, this all this thing has been kind of made in degraded, if I can use that word, into a, 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 into a different dispensation, which has also allowed new rules uh, of gaining the right to vote in, 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 in that. And this is what really is the flashpoint now, which is what you are referring to, uh, that newer kinds of people can uh, get to vote depending on domicile rather than simply uh, on the basis of, you know, you had to prove that you were really from Kashmir. You could not really buy land, for instance, uh, if you didn't uh, come from there. So those sorts of changes have come in uh, a kind of in a way to kind of create a more integrationist or a more uniform policy there, which has given advantage to uh, to the Hindus, uh, Hindus, and which means that close to a million more uh, Hindu voters have got onto the uh, register, which of course is good news for the BJP. Uh, should should the the, the 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 region vote overwhelmingly for the BJP, will it consolidate India's claim over the territory on the global stage? I mean, I think that is that is a, a tough one in the sense that I think India has resisted uh, historically, regardless of whichever political party is in power. It's in so-called internationalization. Uh, so in some ways, in effect, what you really have is, in effect, you know, the border exists, the line of actual control actually exists. And there is an Indian-administered Kashmir and, and a Pakistan one. And uh, so I think those things are 
I think, I mean, you know, who's to say what's going to happen? You know, that's that's hard to shift at this point. But what you're dealing with is a fairly restive Kashmiri population, as well as the fact that there, you know, that there's also uh, increasing, like just last week, uh, there has been a terror attack and certain Hindus have, you know, a small number of Hindus have lost their lives in, 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 in that attack. So I think there is always bubbling up of violence and insurgency and counterinsurgency. And whether there can be a political process that can, you know, as it were, articulate people's wishes uh, better. Now, I don't think that's likely. And something like this is only really going to polarize uh, the already very, very divisive situation. There. And <laughs> how is it going to influence the already tense relationship with Pakistan? I think um, I think Pakistan comes and goes at the moment. India's uh, strategic um, world is very much focused on China. And one of the big shifts that has happened in the last four or five years is really also China and Pakistan, having always been historically close, have actually now become even closer. And the, the issue is that at the moment, of course, Pakistani politics is incredibly distracted by domestic crises, both in economic and um, political one. But, it, you know, it's really, as it were, the doubling down of these two set hostile neighbors uh, that might eventually pose a problem for India. It's not per se just Pakistan any longer, uh, partly because I think that situation has not it's not quite ma- been managed by India. It has actually been downgraded, but partly also because the Chinese uh, question has become overwhelming. So I think it's not about a claim any longer. It's really how the geostrategic situation will unfold with China and, and really how Kashmir is going to play into it. And I think in one sense, um, Modi's message with all this is, a strong man message that look, you know, this is an internal domestic matter. Uh, it's going to have its own electoral rhythms, and so this this is all a way for Modi to, as it were, uh, you know, um, make and strengthen strengthen those sorts of claims, both domestically and internationally. Shruti, thank you very much indeed. That's Shruti Kapila there. Now, still to come on the program, if we are to successfully transition to the energy system of tomorrow, we cannot simply unplug from the energy system of today. That's Sultan al-Jaba, chief executive of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He's been appointed president of this year's UN Climate Summit. Unsurprisingly, there's been a great deal of pushback from those concerned with fossil fuels. We'll be following that story a little bit later on the show. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. (laughs) 
Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has become the first foreign government leader to address the Parliament of Papua New Guinea. He announced that Australia and PNG are finalising a new security treaty, a move seen as a challenge to China's growing influence in the region. Well, Karen Middleton is the Saturday Paper's chief political correspondent in Canberra. Uh, She joins us on the line now. Karen, what does this security pact entail? Do we have any details? Well, they haven't actually signed it. They've agreed to reach an agreement, Georgina. So they've set a deadline of April the 30th to finalise the detail. And they've put out a quite lengthy statement which says a lot and not very much. (laughs) So there's there's a lot of um, non-specific detail about their objectives to cooperate, to build on their existing relationship, to consult each other, to be more free and open with information. But they haven't said specifically what the practical implications are going to be. But we know what's underneath this, and that is a growing concern uh, in Australia and among allied countries about some of the Pacific nations' closer relationship with China. So there's a concern about that in Australia and this is is being seen in that light. And do you think this will impact on China's influence in the region? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's hard to know, but the Chinese have been uh, becoming closer to a lot of countries around the region and particularly the Solomon Islands forged a security pact which became an issue here in our election campaign last year. And the Australian government, since the change of government in May of last year, have started trying to close, build or deepen their own ties with, with those countries, with the Solomons, with Fiji, with Vanuatu, and forge independent security agreements with them. So the Chinese have been not very impressed with, with the Australian efforts in that regard. They're seeing it as some kind of... Um, statement or almost a hostile action. So I imagine they'll redouble their efforts to engage Papua New Guinea in the light of this. The Chinese are offering a lot of money around the region effectively uh, and they've also been trying to get access to port arrangements in different countries, including in Papua New Guinea. So it'll be interesting to see whether this pact has any impact on that. And what else did we learn from Albanese's speech? Uh, Well, he's talking very um, warmly about the relationship with Papua New Guinea. I think there's been a sense that it's been a bit taken for granted over in recent years because Papua New Guinea forged independence from Australia many decades ago. It's it's our near, very near neighbour, and yet there's been not much of a relationship aside from uh, an aid relationship. So I think he wants he's emphasising the closeness of of the two countries, both geographically and historically and wanting to forge a better political relationship between the two leaders because, of course, they do have shared interests being in the same region and and everything is with a geostrategic uh, eye on the future. I mean, he he did, yeah, as you say, he did say that the two countries are equal. He kept stressing that, uh, although, as you say, PNG, a former colony. Do you get the sense that this is a genuine feeling or is there still a rather paternalistic relationship? I get the sense from the new government that they're trying to get away from that from that kind of relationship. There's been that accusation levelled at Australia about its relationship with a lot of smaller Pacific nations in the last couple of decades, really. There's been a sense, for example, that 
Australian Prime Ministers were never very much enthusiastic participants in the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the annual conference of Pacific leaders every year. Sometimes Prime Ministers would not attend. They would send a foreign minister. Sometimes they would attend but but appear distracted or not, not fully engaged. And, and Australia is the big country in the region. So there's been long been this sense that Australia has sort of flexed its muscles a little bit and, and, and had a bit of a there-there attitude to Pacific Islands. And it does seem like the new government wants to take a different different approach, that the Pacific has got a bit sick of it, frankly, and that the new government is saying, no, we actually want to deal with you on equal terms more respectfully than than governments past. And was the migrant and asylum seeker situation addressed at all? Well, I don't know whether they'd spoke about it in detail. It's been a controversial arrangement for Australian governments um, for, for some years. In fact, it was Labor that really forged what became known as the Pacific Solution about sending migrants offshore. Uh, but I imagine that they would have had detailed conversations at the leader-to-leader level about migration and the asylum arrangements uh, because there are still some people who came from um, other countries who ended up in Papua New Guinea, firstly detained on Manus Island and, and ultimately living in Papua New Guinea because of the Australian government's policy to never allow them to come to Australia. So it's an ongoing issue between the two countries and I imagine they would have discussed it. Mm. So it seems like a successful visit. When do we wait for April? I mean, when might the bilateral security pact be finalised? Well, they said April is a deadline, so I'm guessing we won't see much detail too far in advance of that. But there's going to have to be some clearly some thrashing out of fine detail, and whether it means things like training, ex- greater training exercises, or uh, assurances to come to each other's aid in particular circumstances or not isn't clear. But they have nominated some non-traditional areas of security like cyber security, like climate change impact and the like. So I think there's going to be a number of strands to this agreement um, and they clearly have a little bit more negotiating to do. Karen, thank you very much indeed. That's Karen Middleton there in Canberra. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Thousands of Peruvians protested in the streets of Lima last night against the newly instated president, Dina Bluarte. Ms. Bluarte has received a vote of confidence from Peru's Congress, despite an inquiry being launched against her by the country's top prosecutor's office. The peak of China's current COVID-19 wave is expected to last two to three months, according to a top Chinese epidemiologist. Infections are expected to surge in rural areas where medical resources are scarce, as millions travel for the Lunar New Year. And Lisa Marie Presley, the daughter of Elvis Presley and a singer in her own right, has died at the age of 54. She was taken to hospital after suffering a cardiac arrest. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Yesterday, the United Arab Emirates announced that Sultan al-Jaba, chief executive of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, had been appointed president of this year's UN Climate Summit. COP28 will be held in Dubai from the end of November. Well, uh, joining me now is Bill Law, who is uh, an expert in the region. Bill, obviously this has caused a great deal of concern amongst climate groups. So just who is Sultan al-Jaba? Sultan al-Jabbar is, um, he's 50 years old. He's certainly very well entrenched in the in the uh, energy sector. He's got an interesting history because uh, going back to at least 2009, he has been engaged in issues related to climate change. Uh, he, uh, in addition to his role as the CEO of uh, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, 
He's also in charge of something called Mazdar, Mazdar City, which was uh, um, established uh, in 2015 and is designed to be a net zero city. It's the headquarters of IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some certainly indications that he understands the issues about uh, climate change, that he has a certain uh, concern about it. However, there he sits um, uh, as the uh, the head of uh, one of the uh, largest uh, company, an you know, energy company that is one of the largest carbon footprints in the world. Um, and I'll give you just a, 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 a there, there are some contradictions here. Uh, I, I don't want to immediately say that, you know, it's the case of uh, the Fox and the Hen House. It's a little more complex than that. Uh, Mr. Al-Jabbar and, and Adnock have, for example, committed to 15 billion dollars to increase uh, the, the, the gigawatts of, of clean energy that Mazdar uh, globally will, uh, will, will produce from 20 gigawatts to uh, 100 gigawatts by 2030. So that's 15 billion. That's a big commitment, obviously. On the other hand, he's also committed to pumping more oil. He wants to, by 2030, increase the amount of oil that Adnock produces from three million barrels per day to five million barrels per day and the company's committed 150 billion to that project so you can see that really that uh, what uh, mr al jabara wants to do is a kind of a finesse that is to um, keep adnock at the forefront of oil and uh, and gas uh, hydrocarbons production while at the same time presenting um, you know a forward-looking approach to climate change the question for me is really, do we have the time for this? I mean, we're seeing that uh, temperatures rising. I was just before I uh, started talking to you, Georgina, I was looking at an article about how all of the ski resorts in the Alps are without snow this year. Uh, we, we're seeing catastrophic damage in, in California. We're seeing wildfires. We're seeing storm surges. Uh, you know, these 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 uh, countries, for example, UAE is committed to net zero by 2050. So, Saudi Arabia 2060, um, you know, what the oil companies want to do is to keep their share of the market, indeed increase their share of the market, while somehow building in, um, you know, an, an energy, a green energy friendly platform. Uh, my argument would be that what these na national oil companies need to be doing, and it's particularly the uh, Saudi Aramco and uh, Adnoc, is, is preparing for a thoughtful retreat from oil, but they're not. They're actually advancing on the oil front, uh, and I think hugely to the detriment of the of the environment. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out next uh, in 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 Abu Dhabi, really, um, uh, in Dubai. I'm sorry, in Dubai. Yeah, I mean, because critics have been very very fierce on this. What are people saying about his appointment? Well, I think you know the the climate change people. They're they're howling in rage, and, and understandably, uh, you know, because you know. You think, right, this company needs to be doing much more than it's doing. It needs to commit much more strongly. And if we look at uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, you know, the oil lobby was there in full force, indeed, much more even than in Glasgow. And we can expect to see the same thing, certainly, uh, in, in Dubai. So so there are, there are a lot of concerns, justifiable concerns. Uh, you know, I think at the same time, uh, if if these uh, oil companies are pushed harder to pursue green energy, clean energy, they've got the resources, uh, they can do it. Now, 
Also bear in mind that the Middle East and in particular the Arabian Gulf are really on the front lines of climate change. You know, if, if the climate uh, temperature rises increase, continue the way they're going, the Arabian Gulf will be in, uninhabitable by 2050. Uh, you know, so the time, the, the clock is ticking. And, and I think that uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I think that it's really important that uh, the people who are concerned about climate change get a chance to challenge. However, the difficulty is, if you look at the United Arab Emirates, it's effectively a police state. You're not going to get criticism of Adnan within uh, the UAE. You're not going to, you'll have the same situation happen at Sharm uh, this year, which is that protesters are going to be, you know, uh, limited in, in, in the impact that they can have. And it, it's really up to, I suppose, the rest of us to to put much more pressure on on um, uh, Mr. Al-Jabbar and on the UAE government to deliver much more forcefully on these promises of, of green energy as opposed to simply ramping up production of, uh, of dirty energy, oil and gas. Uh, those in favour of Mr. Al-Jabbar's appointment to, to chair COP28 say that pragmatism is the only way forward. Do you think that that could backfire spectacularly? Oh, yes, I do. I, I think it could backfire spectacularly. Uh, as I said, uh, time is running out. And, uh, you know, the, the, this uh, effort to, you know, in, actually increase the amount of oil that these big companies are putting onto the market is, you know, what, what, what are we saying here? We're saying that we know that the climate is warming. We know that uh, dirty energy is, is a primary cause of it, but we're going to increase, you know, the amount we dump onto the market. Uh, you know, there have to be big, big concerns and big, big questions. Bill, thank you very much indeed. That's Bill Law, the Middle East analyst and editor of Arab Digest. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. It's 7.37 here in London. That's 8.37 in Zurich. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, a CNN Europe editor. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to have you in the studio. We've not spoken before, so it's great to have a a fresh face here in the morning. Uh, Now, we've been covering, obviously, the Biden documents scandal. Uh, We talked about it at the top of the show. And I wonder how the press are covering this. Yeah, well, uh, what a surprise and what a week it's been politically, just as we thought things had calmed down over the last few years. We now have a situation, Georgina, where we've got a former president, Donald Trump, who, of course, is facing investigations for classified material having been found on his premises. And now we've got a sitting president, Joe Biden, uh, facing not just one uh, revelation that classified documents were inside a think tank that he was related to. These apparently from his time as vice president during the Obama administration, but that they might also be other, or there have also been other discoveries made inside his own house in Delaware. Um, The facts appear to be quite different, and the way the media seems to be covering it at the moment is to focus on the difference in those facts. Now, of course, um, Trump's discovery involved hundreds of files. Um, It appeared as though he was not cooperating. Obviously, his lawyers, um, you know, have been... uh, 
accused of not having disclosed documentation. The Biden administration, because he is a sitting president and he enjoys all the apparatus of uh, the West Wing inside the White House, he is uh, making it very, very clear that he does wish to cooperate. So people are focusing a lot on the facts at the moment because obviously this revelation uh, about these classified documents in these properties linked to Joe Biden obviously comes at a time when we've had a relatively quiet time in US politics. Um, and obviously Trump's, the, the situation vis-a-vis Trump was slightly different because it came on the back of a real roller coaster ride, um, during which time in his presidency he had obviously met some very controversial figures, like, for instance, the leader of North Korea, Vladimir Putin, so on and so forth. So the revelation that there might possibly have been hundreds of classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, which essentially is a hotel, is viewed as slightly different. But having said that, obviously, given the severity of the situation, the Attorney General in the United States has appointed a special team to investigate this. The political uh, backdrop is very different in the media and also in the House and Senate now, because obviously we have a Republican Speaker in charge of the House of Representatives. And so I imagine that this is going to be an issue that's going to be probed repeatedly, both in the US media, in political uh, circles in the United States as we head towards 2024, because remember that the next election's round the corner and we could end up with President Trump on the ticket and President Biden on the ticket, both being investigated for these classified documents having been found on properties linked to them. Quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, Now, last October, there was an awful, deadly crowd crush in Seoul. uh, And there's finally a report out just saying what happened and, and, and apportioning blame to a certain degree. Yeah, except this appears to have disappointed many uh, families who tragically lost loved ones here in this disaster that happened back in Halloween of last year in the Itaewon district in downtown Seoul, where hundreds of thousands of people, young people largely, had congregated in dangerous numbers on the streets to celebrate Halloween. It was supposed to be a joyous occasion, but obviously it ended up with this crush that saw 159 people lose their lives. Now, After months and months of this investigation, finally uh, findings have been revealed. But uh, family members say that um, one of them's quoted in, in in fact, the BBC this morning as saying that this is basically a cover-up to uh, save the skin of people further up uh, the chain among uh, the power base in Seoul um, in terms of city officials and so on and so forth. They were quoted as saying that this investigation, to me, uh, cuts the tail off the lizard to save the head. That was, I think, the quote that I read. And uh, by one parent, bereaved parent in the BBC. Um, the six people appear to have been um, investigated, uh, including the head of the police in the department, uh, the part of the city where this happened. But uh, local uh, residents of Seoul and indeed more broadly across uh, South Korea want more senior people to be dragged into this investigation and to be looked into. And it speaks to a broader trend in South Korea, of course, of uh, wanting to see more transparency from the country's political and municipal elites and also from its police uh, commissioners and so on and so forth. So I think this is a story that isn't over. Mm. Let's move on to France now, where Brigitte Macron uh, has been talking about school uniforms. Now, of course, she is a former teacher, famously the teacher of the president, who who she married after he left school. Um, But she's been accused of embarrassing his education minister because she's agreed with uh, populists uh, calling for the return of school uniforms. This is personal for me because I went to a French lycée, actually, um, until almost my university days and um, 
as a result, I've never had to wear a school uniform. <laughs> uh, and as a mother of two young children who are at school here in the United Kingdom, now uh, I see the benefits of uniforms from a parental point of view because of their simplicity. And this is, seems to be what uh, Brigitte Macron was speaking about here. Uh, this is, by the way, what she's commenting on, the backdrop of what she's commenting on, Georgina, is, is a, um, a private member's bill brought forward in the equivalent of the parliament in France in the Assemblée Nationale by the far-right uh, National Rally Party. This is, of course, the sort of reputationally rehabilitated party that used to be called the Front National, uh, who want to introduce a debate about uh, French school children wearing uniforms um, for a whole host of reasons. But the reality is that very, very few French school children wear uniforms. And I can talk about this because I went to a French school. 80-90% of French uh, pupils would never dream of wearing a uniform because it is not part of the uh, you know educational system there. So this is speaking to a very very um, small number of, um, of of children who this would would be affected by this. And it seems as though Brigitte Macron herself went to one of these Catholic schools, which again, as I said, is the minority where you do have to wear a uniform. She said it never really affected me, and in fact, it was helpful because I didn't have to think mm. about what I have to wear in the morning. Um, but I think, yes, it's an embarrassment, but on the other hand, this is really sort of a wedge issue that the far right is seeking to exploit. It's important, though, because her own husband, Emmanuel Macron, the president, has deemed repeatedly the far right as being the big political challenge for France. Mm. I mean, I would totally agree about uniforms. I, I wore a uniform throughout my school days. We used to have to kneel down and unless your skirt touched the floor, you'd get a whack from a ruler by a cross nun. <laughs> and they'd also check you were wearing regulation knickers. <laughs> uh, let's go to Canada now, where a woman's been ordered to pay back her employers after spyware uh, showed that she wasn't working hard enough. And this is outrageous. <laughs> this is the the most alarming story of all today. It doesn't involve famous people. It doesn't involve a company that you know. It doesn't even involve a, a country that I'm particularly familiar with in terms of their employment regulations. But it does send a really worrying signal, I think, um, in today's day and age um, about employee rights, about to what extent monitoring software is being used and how admissible it is in, for instance, an employment tribunal like this. So essentially the backdrop to this case appears to be that there was uh, a lady who was working remotely as an accountant. In fact, a lot of these monitoring softwares do involve, uh, say, accountancy jobs and so on and so forth where you're working with spreadsheets and you can um, very much identify how much an employee is working on that particular spreadsheet. Um, and apparently she, this lady claims that she was fired without due uh, reason and so she sued her employers for compensation and in fact the company came back to the employment tribunal and said well no, we decided to terminate her employment because she had stolen effectively, they said 50 hours worth of shifts from us doing non-work related tasks and the employment tribunal found in the company's favour and ordered the employee to compensate them for the tune of about two to 3,000 Canadian dollars, I think, if I remember, according to this report in The Guardian. It does send a worrying signal. I'm also uh, concerned about, really, I question the rationale for a company to um, fight this 
for such small compensation because reputationally it doesn't seem uh, great from an employment point of view if you want to hire future staff if they know that these are going to be the conditions that they're working under. Mm, Cue a storm of George Orwell quotes. Quite. (laughs) Uh, Let's look at somebody who was fired but is saying that he won't come back. Uh, This is of course uh, Boris Johnson. The Times has a piece saying that he won't oust Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister of the UK. Yes, that's right. So this is a report that's coming out in the Times where it seems as though they've spoken to various allies of the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, saying that uh, Boris Johnson could be offered a safe seat if he hasn't, uh, if, if he doesn't challenge him. Um, now, this is important because I think Boris Johnson, uh, he's currently in a seat in Uxbridge in West London, where I think he has a majority at the last election of 7,000. But remember, the last election was that thumping great Conservative majority with 80-odd seats or so that he delivered the type of success that hadn't been seen since Margaret Thatcher's days and oh how things have changed and that seat is looking more and more marginal and in fact this isn't the first time that we've heard uh, rumours in various British publications that Boris Johnson might be casting around for a safer seat uh, to sit in to then perhaps return um, to glory at the helm of the Conservative Party just like his, um, his icon Winston Churchill who of course left office and then came back again as Prime Minister. Um, And also what's interesting, I noticed in the same newspaper, is that it it appears as though one of the main backers of the Brexit party, a Thai-based tech internet uh, mogul, has donated £1 million to Boris Johnson. Uh, So he is, uh, again, he is apparently the donor, could be returning to favour as the donor's darling. And that means that if that previous person who's donated to the Brexit party in the past is willing to donate to Boris Johnson, that could also stave off a challenge from uh, the kind of parties like Brexit Party, Reform Party, Reform UK, that want to push for a harder Brexit here. And that could mean that Boris Johnson could be more palatable to the Conservative Party in the future to stave off that sort of further right-wing challenge. Mm. Although so, by all accounts, he's making huge amounts of money on the speaker's circuit and probably uh, is better off outside. Apparently both. <laughs> and he's also generating more headlines for the Partygate scandal as well. So that that's a story that you know will continue to counterbalance his ascendancy if indeed he does return to frontline politics anytime soon, Georgina. <laughs> uh, sigh, eye roll, etc. <laughs> Nina, thank you very much indeed. That's Nina Dos Santos there. And this is The Globalist. It's time to talk business now with Monocle's business editor, David Hadari. Good morning to you, David. Good morning. Uh, let's start with the FT. And these are new figures released on Thursday showing America's inflation at its lowest level in more than a year. What's the detail on that? So it's only a tiny drop on the previous month, just 0.1 percentage point. But it's the sixth consecutive drop. Uh, in US inflation. And that's another sign that the pricing pressures that have plagued countries across the Western world may have peaked. It suggests that the Federal Reserve's uh, historic campaign to tighten 
uh, interest rates is working and the cost of living is starting to inch down. So does it mean that the Federal Reserve will stop raising interest rates? Probably not for the foreseeable future, although it does mean that we're talking about them slowing the pace of, of their rises, which in itself is significant. You know, some of the Fed's committee members are considering reverting to the normal quarter percentage point rises from the uh, from the half point rises they're, they're currently at. Why is it happening now and, and can we expect to see slowing inflation elsewhere in the world? Sure. So there's a few things going on right now. First of all, it follows signs that higher borrowing costs are forcing consumers to spend less, which means central banks are doing their jobs. Um, supply chain problems do appear to be easing and in turn that's pushing down prices for energy uh, and other item, items like cars and appliances and clothing and as for other places it's not for sure that we've seen the peak of inflation yet. Uh, In the UK, analysts don't think it's peaked here just yet, but in France and Germany, they're saying it is. And a warmer winter also means that energy prices are not as high as they were feared to be. So that's also helping things. Let's go to Sweden now and this discovery of Europe's largest deposit of rare earth metals. Tell us more about this news and why it's important. Sure. So what you need to know there is that this huge deposit of rare earth metals was made, was discovered by the Swedish state miner just north of the Arctic circle in Swedish Lapland and that contains more than a billion tonnes of what's called rare earth oxides and if that sounds a bit dry um, I'll just tell you that it's the metal that goes into wind turbines, electric vehicles and solar panels and European countries will need to use them in order to to cut carbon and, and proceed with the energy transition. So what's the Swedish government going to do with this? I mean will they be mined? Will they be used? Well not much actually for the next 15 years or so. Ironically because of the complex processing and intensive environmental effects of mining those metals, there's a lot of red tape involved and it could take up to a decade and a half to deliver those metals to market. And there's a lot of people out there who assume that the tech-like electric vehicles are actually the panacea to the world's environmental problems. Um, And while they do reduce emissions overall, they do bring their own environmental problems too. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much, so many metals need to go in to to make those batteries, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic, you know. Um, On the one hand, the EU is predicting a five-fold increase uh, in demand for the metals used in EVs and wind turbines by the end of the decade. And if it's going to reach its environmental targets, it kind of needs to dig them out of the ground, which is itself environmentally damaging. And the other part of its reasoning... uh, on on doing this is that um, right now four-fifths of the world's rare earth metals are are possessed or processed by China and the EU has put a a drive for greater self-sufficiency in in raw materials like this at the top of its agenda. So it's seeking to curb its reliance on China and Russia for obvious reasons as we're seeing right now with the Ukraine war and it's also looking for a deal with Australia which is another raw materials powerhouse. Mm, And of course lots of raw materials needed for that sort of thing found in conflict zones like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sure and the seabed as well which you know you see these huge uh, machines gouging at the seabed and you know it's almost as though uh, with the solution to one problem we're we're creating a whole new set albeit ones that uh, are slightly less problematic than fossil fuels. So in other green business news the Swiss company Climeworks yesterday became the first ever company to pull carbon dioxide from the open air that's really exciting they've they've stored it underground how does it work? Yeah, so um, essentially what happens is Climeworks uh, has these installations of what look like tennis court-sized air conditioning units. They're actually fans that suck in air, uh, use spongy filters to trap carbon dioxide, and then another company called CarbFix uh, combines that CO2 with water, pumps it into stone underground where it's stored for thousands of years, and 
Climeworks is one of the companies uh, racing to to um, to make money off this, basically. Mm, mm. So, do you think then that carbon capture technology is going to save the planet? Well, if it ever is, it's not going to happen for a long time. So, Climeworks is the first company to successfully capture carbon, and that is going to be a lucrative business. So, it already has companies like Microsoft and the payment platform Stripe and the e-commerce platform Shopify. Uh, they've all already paid. Um, hundreds of dollars a ton for for Climeworks to start, you know, neutralizing the the emissions that they make. Um, but it's not especially cost effective right now. It costs hundreds of dollars to remove a ton, um, and it's likely that will decline over time. But scientists estimate billions of tons of carbon a year will need to be removed each year by the middle of the century to avoid the worst effects of of global warming. And there are also fears that. Um, that the fossil fuel industry could see this as a as a make weight for it to keep going on, you know, pulling things out of the ground and polluting with it. So yeah. let's hope that doesn't happen. Absolutely. But the technology exists, which is absolutely great news for the climate. Uh, David, very many thanks for joining us. David Hadari is our business editor here on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. <laughs> Pitiomo, the world-renowned men's attire fair, is currently underway in Florence. Natalie Teodosi is Monocle's fashion editor and she's on the line from the city now. Natalie, good morning to you and I so envy you being in that beautiful city. Can you tell us what the mood is there? Hi, Georgina. Yes, it has been really great to be in Florence, really sunny, and it, it's been a great fair, a really good mood. I think we started the year with a bit of a bleak outlook as to what the luxury industry will face in the year, but it's been really optimistic, uh, especially for the brands here, which are really specialist brands focused on on craft and, and on really timeless quality pieces. The brands have been saying that they've had a really good week and a lot of demand and orders from buyers coming in from the UK and the US, but also a lot of Japanese and South Korean buyers have been returning for the first time back to PT Uomo and placing orders, scouting new talents. So things are looking up. And what about, I mean, there are so many extraordinary buildings in Florence, like, um, I don't know, the Duomo. Are, Are many of the shows taking place in those landmarks? They are indeed. And what's also really special is that there's not a long series of shows every day like in other fashion weeks. Uh, The fair usually will invite one or two uh, special guests uh, to to host fashion shows. So they're also much more highly anticipated. And I think the biggest highlight was a Belgian designer, Jan-Jan Vanesh, who did show his collection in uh, the Santa Maria Novella convent. And it really became part of uh, of the show and the experience. You went in and you could take in the architecture, the show and a dance performance uh, took place. But then you came out thinking that the show is over and uh, that you, we would just go back on the street. But you entered this beautiful courtyard and the models were standing, showing the clothes uh, in front of these beautiful frescoes and almost blended in with uh, with the art you would see on the walls. And it was really an experience. And, and he said he designed it this way to, to take you through different emotions and, and through a real journey. Mm-hmm. Tell us what's selling, Natalie. 
What seems to be selling more and more is the formal wear category. So suits, um, loafers, dress shoes, and even ties are back. I spoke to uh, an Italian brand called Bigi, who said that, um, you know, they've had a really tough uh, two, three years, but all of a sudden things are really looking up and there is a lot more appetite now that it's not really uh, part of a uniform and it's not mandatory to put on suits and to dress up. People are doing it a lot more uh, for pleasure and rediscovering the joy of putting on a good suit, uh, dressing up a bit more than you have to. Um, Richard James, a British tailor, told me they're even having trouble on keeping up with the demand that's coming from Europe, but also from these other strong markets that we've we've mentioned before, like um Korea, Japan and the US. Natalie, thank you very much indeed. That was Natalie Terdosi speaking to us from Florence. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchuan, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time on Monday and I'll be with you over the weekend too on Monocle on Saturday tomorrow and with my guest, the author Howard Jacobson on Meet the Writers on Sunday. That's it. Thank you for listening.